I have with me Professor Edward Lutzbach, who is a strategist and historian known for his works on grand strategy, geoeconomics, military history and international relations. Welcome to the Israel Connection, Edward. Thank you. Now, Edward, you've written an article titled Israel is Definitely Winning the Political War, and that's what caught my eye. And there you say that in spite of all the anti-Israel demonstrations around the world and the huge pressure being brought to bear on Israel to carry out a ceasefire, Israel is definitely winning the political war. The real one waged not in the streets, but in the foreign ministries of adversaries, neutrals and allies. Could you explain, please, what has led you to this view? This is one of the 10 different subjects on which it's a real advantage not to watch imagery, television, and all this stuff. In 1967, I was a volunteer in Israel. It's a little known fact, but the victory was due to my fighting and so on, and I still have the helmet of a Syrian soldier I killed. At that moment, Israel was completely isolated. The only country that had been supplying weapons, France, uh, President de Gaulle declared there'd be no more supplies because they started the war and so on. He decided to switch sides and sell the Mirage fighters to the Arabs. So Israel had zero allies, certainly not the United States. Remember, the United States refused to sell weapons to Israel from the day of its establishment in May 15, 1948, until 11 years after the Russians were shipping hundreds of jet fighters and three or 4,000 tanks, they were willing to sell 200 tanks to Israel. None of them had been delivered. The A-4 Skyhawk, the, the smallest, cheapest, least subsonic, uh, tiny aircraft, that's what they're willing to sell. And so none of it had been delivered in 1967. There was not a single American weapon in Israel. So Israel did not have the United States and certainly didn't have in Europe. In fact, a consignment of gas masks, because the Egyptians had been using phosgene and mustard in Yemen as late as January 1967. Israelis bought gas masks and they went through Rome airport. They were blocked by the Italian government, by a foreign minister, Andreotti, and nobody said a word. The, the Europeans would not supply anything to Israel, not even gas masks, to fight Egyptians who had just used mustard, gas, and phosgene. That was the situation of Israel in 1967. Yes. In 1973, and the war caught me by surprise, so I only got there later, but I did get to cross the Suez Canal like all good boys and so on. And at that moment, Israel had an ally, the United States, one ally, United States. That ally was a conditional ally. It took President Nixon and Kissinger and so on took several days to agree to an airlift of much-needed supplies. There's a sub-story that the supplies were not actually needed. It's only that in a mass mobilization, the Sinai was full of trucks carrying tank ammunition, but the units at the front didn't get it. In those days, there weren't computer controls, etc. Never mind. So when the United States belatedly agreed to, a, to an airlift, which was then delivered very energetically, very energetically, the whole, uh, because James R. Schlesinger, Secretary of Defense, had told the airlift people to prepare for the airlift long before Nixon authorized it. So the moment Nixon said yes, boom, airplanes took off and very well loaded. Great thing it was, except no European country would allow U.S. aircraft to overfly their airspace. 
And then finally, they persuaded Portugal, the weakest, smallest, in middle of a you know a disaster situation. The Portuguese allowed the Americans to use Azores for um, refueling stop. That is the big U.S. base in the Azores. They allowed gave permission to use it, but once they refueled in the Azores, they had to reach Israel by flying over the very narrow corridor between Morocco and Gibraltar. And because no European country would allow them, not the, not the British, the British at that point were focused on selling jewelry and whatever else they could to the oil nabobs. Yes. And the British said no, and no, everybody said no. So much so that U.S. supplies that were already in Europe, because in those days, there was still the Cold War, there were a lot of U.S. supplies, not in the United States, but in Europe. In order to be flown to Israel, they had to be flown backwards to the Azores in the middle of the Atlantic, and from the Azores back to Israel, the Europeans would not allow the supplies to be delivered from Europe to Israel. That was the situation in 67, total isolation. 1973, only the United States and nobody else. Today, what is the situation? Well, uh, the Russians talk against Israel at the UN, but when the Israeli Air Force operates in Syria, it does so in conjunction with the Russian Air Force, and so that the last strike in Damascus where several Iranian Revolutionary Guard colonels and junior generals went to their maker, that airstrike was coordinated with the Russian Air Force base in Latakia. The Chinese also come out against Israel, and uh, I've noticed that of the 22 joint ventures that they have with Israel, none has been diminished, one has been considerably boosted, although unrelated to the war. In other words, the Chinese talk for the Arabs at the UN, when they want to do business, they do it with Israel. Okay, and, and they would love to be able to do strategic business and military business, but they'll settle for milk and dairy products and so on, and things of that sort. So, as for Europe, well, I was at the NATO meeting in Naples, coincidentally, unrelated to any of this, but there was a logistics session there, and I saw them taking packages of munitions from the different countries, with the exception of Spain, which fortunately, and Ireland. Ireland only makes tin whistles uh, and so on, so no Irish tin whistles, and the Spanish don't actually have anything in the flow. Everybody else, they were sitting around the table and saying, well, this one we will send to Ukraine, and this will send to Israel because the Israelis requested this. Now, Israel, of course, in, in this war, in the year 2024, Israel is not a needy military country. It's a country that makes its own pistols, its own everything it does. They still need things like the airframes of jet fighters, although they do a lot of the other stuff. So Israel needs much less, and Israel gets much more, and the Russians and the Chinese are actually in Israel's quarter when it comes to practical stuff, even if at the UN they want to sing songs, you know, uh, for the Arabs. And in regard to Europe, with the exception of Ireland, Spain, and Iceland, Iceland of all places, which is very hostile, Ireland and Iceland are the most hostile. Uh, these large, powerful empires are against Israel, but Germany is on Israel's camp. In fact, the German chancellor flew to Israel at the beginning of the war. German support for Israel has not diminished by one milligram, by nothing. And the French also have, were so politically supportive and 
Israel is buying almost no military items from France at all, but if they they gave the French would supply them, and that goes for every other country. The Netherlands, of course, Belgium, which is still a, a weapons producer, although I'm not sure what exactly. So, in other words, 67 total isolation, 1973 only in the United States. Today, United States, Europe, and another country, a very small Asian country, very tiny country, India, which full out support, public opinion, government, diplomacy, and so on support. And by the way, the Indian frigate in the Red Sea is the one that actually is very active now. And so there's this, India is an emerging uh, superpower it is a nuclear power. It is definitely not a small power. It can't be described as a medium power. So a great power. And Israel has it in his, on its side, on its, very much on its side. From a diplomatic point of view, Israel's position, from, that is from a real point of view, a real life point of view, things that matter, Israel's position has greatly increased. But from the point of view of, of idiots demonstrating in the streets, you know, ignorant students and so on, you, know, you all, heard, I'm sure, know that when the river to the sea chanters, the chanters root to sea, are asked to name the river and the sea, name rivers like the Nile and the Black Sea, <laughs> you know, things like that. From those characters who are Muslim, Arabs, fanatics, plus idiots and uh, ignoramuses, people who don't know a thing, they are demonstrating in the streets. But they don't make a difference in this world in which we live. The people who do make a difference have switched from a complete refusal to engage with Israel, 67, to active hostility in 73, because then they wanted to earn brownie points with the oil shakes, because that's when the oil price exploded. And suddenly the Arabs were in London buying jewelry on Bond Street and buying... Uh, British jet fighters that nobody wanted, and certainly not the RF, and they were buying them. So that's it. Revolution. I, I wanted to say, you haven't even mentioned uh, the Abraham Accords in the Arab world. Uh, in what you... oh, oh, yes, yes. I should simply say that none of the countries that have established relations with Israel have either stopped them or indicated any desire to do so, whereas the Saudi foreign minister, who is a serious guy, made a speech saying that we await the end of the war and some kind of thing for Palestine to continue with. Uh, they're determined to establish relations with Israel. And everybody knows that I was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, several months ago. And I don't actually know what was going on in terms of negotiations between the parties. But I stayed in three hotels. In all three hotels, I heard Hebrew in the elevators, the corridors, the cafeterias, and so on. And they're all, they didn't look like tourists. They didn't go there to take the waters. And they were all, in other words, the Saudis didn't, are not awaiting the formal diplomatic relations to develop connections. And there is there a possibility of a fusion between Israeli high tech or Israeli tech, let's call it that, because of things like water and so on, and, and Saudi funds. Not the miserly, the miserable uh, 10, 12 billions that you get from Intel and Kiryat Gat or whatever, but rather we're talking big money, the real money. You know. uh, well, just one of the Saudi funds is $100 billion. One other country uh, you haven't mentioned, which uh, I'm sure you're going to say is not very significant in the, in the whole uh, 
picture, and that's Australia. Australia, compared to where it was 50, 60 years ago, is now having more antipathy towards Israel than ever. You mean in the streets? No, in the government. Is the government is hostile? Well, the government so, is not as friendly towards Israel as, as it was uh, when we saw... Uh, yeah, so you're now measuring the Australian governments by the exalted standards of today, but they, of course, they uh, have diplomatic relations with Israel. They did make some supporting statements after October 7. Australia and Canada, both were countries that had zero impact on Israel, they never did anything of any use to Israel. But then Canada, and both Canada and Australia had their seasons of being strongly pro-Israeli, and then there's a reaction and so on. Let's say it would be very unpleasant also for Australian Jews if the Australian government were hostile to Israel. The fact that they're not substantially supportive or not sufficiently supportive that's an it's an irritation, it's an annoyance, but it's not consequential. Yes, well, it affects us in our Jewish community here in Australia. That's uh, why I am uh, am somewhat concerned about it. But I want to shift the focus uh, because we've now seen uh, a major attack on American forces in Jordan only uh, only yesterday. This brings the political war uh, that's going on with Iran into the picture. Now, how yes. much of um, of a setback has it been for Israel that the Biden administration, when it came to office, sought to return the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, back into action and uh, thought they could uh, drag Iran back into compliance so the sanctions could be lifted and we'd get into happy land. Now, this, of course, is not where we are. There are now words coming out to suggest that uh, America may even be uh, looking at attacking targets within Iran itself because of what had just happened. The Biden administration, as you know, President Biden, reacted to October 7 more or less the same way as uh, an Israeli. He might as well have been an Israeli leader because he came out full out in a useful way, full support in a useful way by actually and sent a carrier, an aircraft carrier, happens to be the largest, offshore in order to tell Hezbollah, don't join. You're thinking of joining? Don't. Because that aircraft carrier, it has the equivalent of three squadrons to Israel's 15 squadrons. So it's not a decisive thing, of course, but it's useful. But what was really useful was the Biden made it very clear, saying, you launch rockets, we bomb you. And remember, an aircraft carrier doesn't have to, the airplanes don't travel far to hit the targets. They're just off, off the coast. So their their bombing capacity is multiplied. Because, you know, these usually bombing you fly for, could fly 200 miles or more nautical miles before you bomb. There you fly 25 miles. It was significant militarily. It was significantly politically and symbolically. And it was a big message in Europe which was picked up immediately by Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Union, who is quite an authoritative figure. She immediately flew to Israel. That started the chain reaction of other people flying to Israel and so on. So that was all great. Now, when it comes to Iran, when it comes to Iran, which is, of course, a heavily funded Hamas, there were principal funders and everything else, and naturally Hezbollah and so on, comes to Iran, the Biden administration has been entrapped 
in Obama's law. There is the Obama law. The Obama law is that Iran can attack anybody, but nobody can attack Iran. That's the Obama law. Okay? They were entrapped in it. And in fact, they had the guy called Robert Malley at the White House, the son of two fanatically anti-Israeli uh, Stalinist Jews, one New York, one uh, Egypt. This Mali was the Ayatollah man in the White House, and he connected with a group of Ayatollah groupies in Washington who are in think tanks and so on, which are funded by dubious sources, of course, and they enforced Obama's law. And why did they do that? Because Obama himself enforced Mali on Biden. When Obama, Obama's support is very important for Biden, of course, and he enforced, to, you have to have Susan Rice, who was the National Security Advisor, the most disastrous in human history, going back to prehistoric times. Susan Rice, but Biden put her in a, in a thing called the Domestic Policy Council, which is more or less the same as putting her, locking her in the bathroom of the basement of the White House. Mali, on the other hand, Obama was so watchful on Bali being important because his greatest achievement, Obama's, was to the joint plan of action with Iran, you know, the nuclear agreement with Iran. And Mali's job was to revive it, which he certainly tried to do very hard. Mm -hmm. Only recently he tripped up on a security clearance because of his conviviality with the Ayatollah groupies here who are sheltered in the Trita Parsi is the best known of them as well. But anyway, the Obama law is was still in effect as of last night because the president had said after the attack on the U.S. base in Iraq, which followed attacks on the U.S. base, these are very small bases, but they are bases in Syria, President Biden has said this will not go unanswered and so on support, but then he would only authorize limited military action against these Iran-supported militias in Iraq and Syria. And, of course, against the Houthis, only in regard to attacking their uh, buildings that they thought they kept the missiles that they were launching at ships. That was it, okay? But the Obama law still applied. The Iranians could attack everybody, but nobody attacks Iran. And he said, well, we have made our position clear, Biden said, and uh, we are we're the third there in, you know, in plan. What happens is that instead of being the third, they were encouraged, and the result was three American dead now. The administration has not swallowed this. The administration has not got past the point of the three American dead and 40 wounded in a big, big explosion on this very tiny base in Jordan. Now, they are in the throes of decision. Biden knows that if there is no attack on Iran itself, some proper, you know, suitable target like Revolutionary Guard headquarters or one of the Revolutionary Guard uh, things in Tehran, preferably, but not somewhere in the desert. If there's no such thing, what will happen is there'll be more attacks on U.S. Evidently, he said, we deter, We are deterring them, answer, they are not deterred. That's clear, because they launched this attack. Not only, there was an attack in Jordan, where there were no previous attacks, and an attack that was meant to kill and succeeded to kill, and significantly. So, Biden now 
is faced with the, with the fact that he must finally break Obama's law and attack a target in Iran. If it doesn't do that, there'll be, I believe that the response will be more attacks. I don't think the response will be clever, like no attacks. It'll be stupid, more attacks. Now, there's something else going on, and this is brand new stuff. Today, I received um, information that Iran and analysts, I don't know who they are, said that actually the Iranians don't really control these people. They make their own decisions. And in regard to the Houthis specifically, that the leader of the Houthis, whose name is so-and-so, so-and-so al-Houthi, that he holds himself higher than the, he thinks he's superior to the Revolutionary Guard people. He doesn't follow their orders at all. So when the Houthis launch a missile against a warship, it doesn't mean Iran is launching a warship. The Iranians, poor boys, don't control them. Whoever circulated, and this could only come from the Ayatollah groupies in Washington, who, as I say, have a think tank, you know, structured to do this sort of thing, or from CIA analysts. Because I follow CIA analysts very, very carefully. I myself, I'm a government contractor and researcher. And I follow them carefully because the track record is perfect. They're never, they're always wrong. So if you follow their analysis, you get significant pointers. But in this case, their wrongness should induce an investigation because their wrongness is not just stupidity and ignorance. By the way, there are only two people who know Farsi in the CIA. Two, two. Okay, this is after half a century of engagement with Iran. Two. Because I, I guess it's difficult to learn. The rumor that they are not responsible, they didn't say we're not responsible for the attack on Jordan, which was launched from Iraq, not by the Houthis, okay? Yes. But they circulated the story that, that the Houthi guy doesn't listen to them. Now, the, of course, the weapons they launch are Iranian. So if they decide to act on their own without Iran, they'll be able to launch, um, the you know, not missiles, but what Yemen produces, bows and arrows, I presume. They'll try and attack ships with bows and arrows because that's what the Yemenis used to produce, kind of old-fashioned muskets, but I think they stopped maybe 18th century muskets, that's what they could. Everything else depends on Iranian supplies. Therefore, the idea that they're independent, which was circulated by this analysis of this forum, is complete fantasy. There's no independence whatsoever. They're agents of Iran in great detail. Can I just say that uh, if America does uh, attack a target within Iran, do you really think that Iran will, will, will stop uh, its, uh, its attacks uh, on uh, Americans or, uh, or its allies? There is a particular situation in Iran. Runaway inflation in Iran has, for the first time, brought hunger to the middle class in Tehran. There are people who are better off than them. There might be, let's say, farmers in Azeri province of Iran, the Azer, Iranian Azerbaijan, to be better off. But the bulk of the Tehran population, who you define as middle class, are feeling hunger for the first time because of inflation. They are all salaried, and inflation has been very great. I mean, like 40, 50% or something. So there's hunger there. Hatred for the regime... I believe that 20% or less support the regime, the others oppose the regime, and I think more than 50% hate them. Give them a chance, they would tear them apart with their bare hands. 
if they given a chance, they would tie all these Ayatollahs behind the jeep and drive them from Tehran, that kind of stuff. Hatred, real hatred. That hatred, by the way, has caused mass defection from the official 12-ver Shia religion. The mosques are empty. There have been opinion polls run by various European agencies. People say, well, I used to be a Shia Muslim. I'm not anymore. And in Tehran, where the polls were conducted, it's about 50%. So the regime, if you attack such a regime while rigorously avoiding innocent casualties by attacking a well-distinguished, well-isolated Revolutionary Guard headquarters or Basich, Basich are these... Um, these unwashed, uh, unwashed uh, militants who come out to beat up demonstrators and so on. They're paid uh, a monthly kind of doll, a very small amount every you know, month and so on. If you attack a highly separated Basij facility, or much better, a Revolutionary Guards facility, where there are no civilians and, and you talk them out, you'll get applause in Tehran, and I would not be surprised if the applause is manifest. That is, that people will take to the roofs or something like that, you know, some device, such a thing. They hate them. They really hate them. You know, uh, as you know, the Mossad has been operating in Tehran with impunity. And uh, one of the reasons that they operate in this way, because, you know, they don't do the uh, James Bond uh, nonsense or whatever, what the CIA peddles to Hollywood. They just go, they live there, they shop, they cook, they eat and so on. I have an, a source who actually was there and doing those things. And he told me, look, I had the very strong feeling that if somebody detected the fact that I was an Israeli person working for Mossad, there was a very good probability that he would not report me if he was by himself. If it wasn't like a group situation where he'd be terrified that somebody else would report me, I had a strong feeling that he would not report me. It's one of the reasons I rela relaxed you know, in Tehran. Although they did complain that even if you're really careful, very, very careful, after a while you put on weight because apparently Iranian food is very deceptive they put a lot of butter, they hide butter in the food and so on. And I said, any other problems? They said, no. CIA has not a single officer in Iran. Too dangerous, they say. Now, I want to turn to moving moving in the, in the minutes we have left to your most recent book. I want to give you oh, a yes. chance to, to plug your book, uh, The Art of Military Innovation, Lessons from the Israeli Defense Forces, which right. is co-authored by Eitan Shamir, who's an IDF insider. Give us yeah. an idea of what uh, your is, is about. Well, Eitan uh, Shamir is a professor, reserve uh, colonel, reserve colonel, uh, with a lot of infantry experience and so. The book is called Army of Innovation. Not not a history of Israel's wars at all. No history of Israel's war. It tries to answer the question: How come a country that you was really small, really poor? was the first country in, in, the, in the Western world to design, develop, build, and deploy an anti-ship missile when the, the Israeli Navy was minuscule, right? It was like three rowboat Navy. And the Israeli Rafael, which is now a large electronics company, was, a, was like a garage with about 12 people. They developed the first missile. And then, of course, they've been constantly innovative technologically. 
and of course with Iron Dome. Uh, Israel has absorbed perhaps uh, 9,000, 8,000, 9,000 rockets that should have killed at a minimum, you know, a couple of thousand people or a thousand people. And there's been none of that because of Iron Dome. And Iron Dome is just a radar, a very ordinary radar in some ways, a missile software which is not ordinary at all. But nevertheless, there's nothing so special about it except one thing which is fantastically special. Namely, it was developed in four years. I don't know if you know about Australian weapon system development, but in four years, you might develop a bayonet. Okay, in the United States, for if you went and developed a, a new radar, a complete new radar, a new missile, and the software, which is apparently the fantastic thing about it, in four years, they laugh you because anti-aircraft systems notoriously take 15, 20 years. They did it in four years. So I looked at some technology thing. I looked at the Merkava tank. I looked at the Namer infantry combat vehicle, which is the reason why Israel has suffered so few casualties in urban warfare plus. Those of you who have practiced urban warfare, as I did, know that the problem with urban warfare is that there are all these levels. You see, you're walking on the street, but people can shoot you from the third floor, the fourth floor, and so on. There is that in Gaza, but there's also tunnels. So Israel, given the fact that they engaged so many people, Israeli casualties should have been not 500, but 5,000, possibly 15,000. They were not. One reason, of course, is the uh, major, major reason, of course, is the training, the fact people were very carefully trained, much more trained than Australian troops ever were in any Australian war in terms of new recruits, new recruits coming into the Australian army, getting to facing the enemy after 18 weeks of training or less, and Israelis have 24 months, 36 months. That's one. But the other is equipment, all kinds of equipment, like all kinds of drones and observation, da, da, da. but also the Namer infantry combat vehicle, which is Israeli troops, which are moved from A to B, they sit in the, in the world's most protected armored vehicle, which is much heavier than any tank around the world, which has a lot of armor, and then on top of armor has those boxes, reactive armor boxes, which are very good, useful against bazookas, RPGs, and so on. And then on top of that has active defense. The active defense on the Nomer is a little, little radar, that like a little radar with a little gun that fires at the incoming, the incoming. And since it doesn't have to fire far, it has a high rate of fire and all that stuff. And that thing is called Trophy. The U.S. bought it. The Germans also bought it. But the reason that the German-supplied Leopard tanks were blown up in Ukraine was because the Germans were not content to buy the Trophy. They decided to improve it and make it the Euro trophy. And of course that takes 18 years and all that kind of stuff. Instead of just buying them and installing them, what the Americans did on the M1 tax. Trophy is like having a little anti-aircraft system of your own on the vehicle. Sees the incoming and shoots. And of course it doesn't shoot far because the incoming, it gets it close, which means that it can have a, it's very easy to do that kind of stuff, which it does. The Namer enables troops to sit inside and see outside 360 degrees as if it were transparent because it has all these optical receptors. So the troops are fully protected and they have situational awareness because they look in every direction and they don't see the vehicle. 
because they are looking with a visor, and the visor is connected to the little optical receptors all around the vehicle. That's the reason why they've had so few casualties, because whenever there was a sticky situation, they could put the troops and move them in the air from A to B, so that if any uh, snipers from above, they ineffectual anti-tank RPG, anti-tank rockets, ineffectual missiles, and including the excellent Russian Cornet missile made by the KPBN Design Bureau. They're wonderful people. The Cornet is a superior missile with a double-action uh, warhead. So if, if it defeats reactive armor because it detonates reactive armor, but then there's a second warhead that penetrates. And even that trophy, of course, deals with that because the thing comes in and is not reactive armor, it intercepts it in flight, it blows up. And my book is about how a small, relatively small, relatively poor uh, country is able to research and develop and produce in double quick time, first rate global class weapons that are now being bought and so on. And the most dramatic example of this was that quite early in the war, a large Iranian ballistic missile was delivered in Yemen, launched by the Houthis, at Israel. And what happened to this ballistic missile is that it was intercepted. There was no warning, there was no expectation, nothing at all. It was simply launched. But launched, it was intercepted in space by the Israeli Arrow 3 system, which is an anti-ballistic missile system, which happens to be the only, so the only country in the world that has ballistic missile defense is Israel. Because, and it was it's a true defense, because there was no, it didn't have to be activated. Uh, the people running that battery, whatever it was, they were sound asleep in the middle of the night. They didn't have to wake up because the system woke up. It detected the incoming up there, the ballistic incoming, then launched it. And this happens to be mankind's very first example of warfare in space. There's never been warfare in space. This is the first example of warfare in space. A relatively small country, relatively small poor country, has uh, the new rifle, this and that, it has these armored vehicles, has this, has that, the other, and it also has the only ballistic missile defense. The United States does not have it. The Russians don't have it. And the book is how it happened, why it happened, what is the mechanism, and by the way, all the methodologies in the book could be used for private companies. Everything the Israelis do is simply, they don't do it the same way as anybody else. They do it in a different way. Well, your, your book is, uh, is certainly well worth having a look at for those who want to understand the amazing uh, capabilities of uh, the IDF. We uh, could talk much more on I had some further questions I wanted to ask. Maybe we'll need to catch up again another time because um, there's another article you wrote, Edward, which was about uh, the ceasefire to your position. That Israel can't accept the ceasefire, that Israel has to go for broke. And uh, must that was early on, like day two, day two, there were people screaming ceasefire, and I said, forget it. That until the until a substantial a percentage of the Hamas leadership or cadre, you know, their officers, so to speak, are killed. And until a lot of the infrastructure is destroyed, the Israelis can't stop. 
there were these screams, you know, for ceasefire now, ceasefire now. Yes, no, not now, and not for months. Uh, there is now the other another threat of a ceasefire that would stop the Hamas. Surprisingly, very surprisingly, want Israelis to stop fighting in Khan Yunis. So I wonder: is it is it because there are a lot of pet farms there, or you know, a zoological garden or something, or is it perhaps where uh, Sinwar and these other people uh, are? The other thing is that I don't believe that Israel. Israeli government will actually accept the deal that is being offered right now because it involves freeing, liberating Hamas people who have killed Israelis and who, of course, will, the moment they're liberated, will say, oh, well, I didn't fight enough. I'm going right back into the fight, you know, and all that stuff. They, uh, they, can't, they can liberate as many women as they want, and they can't liberate people who actually killed people unless they're really old truly old and invalids. If they're in Israeli prisons, as old invalid people, if they start releasing thousands for the hostages and so on. The hostage families have played a very sinister role, of course. Their motives were not sinister. They love their daughters, their sons, parents, and sons. Perfectly understandable. But their role is a very negative role because they want to subordinate the interests of the entire population of Israel to their priority. And uh, that is always a terrible thing. And uh, but you know the fact that the Netanyahu, there are so many Israelis who hate Netanyahu, irrationally hate him. Uh, you can rationally hate Netanyahu, but they don't hate him rationally. They hate him irrationally, and they have embraced the hostage cause as a way of basically embarrassing Netanyahu. But the price is extremely high. Hostages should not be listened to. There is a group of, host, of, of families that have loved ones hostages who have differentiated, you know, have publicly come out, said, no, we're not going to ruin Israel because of our relatives. Every state has to subordinate the interests of the entire population to the interests of a few. That was the reason to create the state of Israel, so that if some Israelis sacrifice themselves, the others will be in security. Without a state, when Jews were killed, the remaining Jews were even more in danger. With the state of Israel, if, if some Israeli soldiers died, the other people are more secure, and the hostages sabotage them. I mean, sorry, the hostage families. I hope that the ceasefire is not deformed by such considerations. Well, we're going to see perhaps uh, soon, because uh, I think the offers have gone uh, in Hamas's direction uh, and we'll see whether there's going to be any acceptance of any of these uh, proposals that have come out of extensive talks. I really thank you very much, Edward, for uh, talking Good. to me today I'm on the Israel Connection. Happy to do it.